0: John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. We've arrived at a passage that I have long wanted to preach on. And one of the best ways to preach on the passages that you want to preach on is to go verse by verse through the Bible and get to every one of them. And so we've arrived here. It also frees you from the fear that anyone might say, You're just preaching on the things you like to preach on, or you're only saying that because you want to cut me or hit me. Well, if I'm going verse by verse, it just comes up in the next section. We're here this morning in John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. And our Lord has some very amazing teaching for us. And when I say the word amazing, I mean that which is difficult to be believed. And we know that it's difficult to be believed because he tells us up front, this is going to be hard for you to believe, but you must believe it. He says that right at the first word of verse 12. Do you pass over these without noticing them? Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, did you know that only the Lord Jesus says that in the Bible? It's said almost 70 times, but only Jesus says it. And he always says it just before he's going to say something that people would have a reason to doubt. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. People would have doubted that. And so our Lord says, you need to know up front, this is something certain. Jesus wants us to know up front, there's something here that you might be tempted to doubt. And I don't want you to doubt this. What is it that might be doubted? Well, where are we at? We're in the book of John, and we've been studying the last words of Jesus Christ. They're the last words before he dies. Of course, he will rise from the dead and then give more words. And then he'll ascend to heaven, and even from heaven, he's not done speaking because in the book of Revelation, he'll speak again in chapters 2 and 3. So we could have a series entitled, The Last Words of Jesus from the book of John, or from the book of Acts, or from the book of Revelation. We're doing a series called, The Last Words of Jesus from the book of John. These are the last words before he died. And we're asking ourselves, what is it that Jesus wants us to know? And the answer is this. He wants you to have the longest sermon from his lips. That is John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 represent the longest recorded speech in the Bible that Jesus gave. What does he say? Well, we've seen in chapter 13, he tells us to be humble. That's the first word of the gospel. Humble yourself. And then he tells Peter, confess your sins. Then he goes further in chapter 13 and tells us there's a new commandment. In John chapter 14, we saw over the previous weeks that Jesus is going to return after he leaves. And when he comes back, he's coming back so that you can stay with him forever. He's coming back to give you himself. Jesus is the pleasure. He's the treasure. He's the joy. And if you come to church for another reason, you must be born again. He is the joy and he's the hope. In fact, he goes further and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Last week we saw That if you know Jesus, then you know God. And if you think you know God, but you don't know Jesus, then you don't know God at all. And with all of that as a background, now our Lord gives one of the most remarkable teachings and says, truly, truly, I'm telling you, don't doubt this. We are natural doubters, aren't we? We doubt so many things. Don't doubt this one, he says. And by the way, the most common time when Jesus says the phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, is here in the last words, John 13 to 17. There are so many things he says here that he knows people are going to doubt. So he tells them up front, no, don't doubt this one. You're going to be tempted to doubt it, but don't doubt it. Here it is, John 14, verse 12. Don't doubt this. What must you not doubt? And here's the answer. Jesus has planned that his people, his sheep, sinners like you, weak women. Don't be angry. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7. Foolish and backward men. Don't be angry. That's what Paul says in Titus 1.15. Men and women like you and me will do greater works than Jesus. You might pass over those words, but if you pause to think about them, you've got to understand that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. You say, well, I believe them in the sense that they're in the Bible. But I don't really believe that there will be greater works done by by Deneo By, by Mugobe Kamatimbe? This guy, he's going to do greater works? I mean, he doesn't have a car. I want to direct your attention today to these words. God's plan is that a believer would do greater works than the Son of God Himself. Let me attempt to show that from the Scripture this morning. Point number one. There is a condition that must be met. Look in verse 12. And can any of you tell me, what's the condition? If you want to do greater works, there's a condition. This is not for everyone. This is for a select group. This is not for all the men. This is for the the special forces. This is for the marines. This is for the rangers. Not everyone gets this mission. It's for some. What's the condition? Can anyone tell me from verse 12? It's the believers. Did you know that that is the Bible's most common way to refer to the children of God? Now, that's interesting. He doesn't say Christians. Christians is only found three times. He doesn't say children of God. That's found very rarely. It's believers. Now, that word believers is very interesting because it's formed from a verb. God says up front there's a condition and the condition is a verb. A verb is an action word you've got to do it there's got to be a subject who's doing it and you're the subject god speaks right to you and says you if you want to do those greater works you've got to be doing this thing what is this thing we dealt with it last week and i opened up the catechism and read the question question 56 what does it mean to believe in jesus does anyone remember the answer you should be doing the catechism with your children Mugabe, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? To rest, hope, and rely in Christ's death. To rest, hope, and rely in Christ's death, in the place of sinners. Galatians two sixteen. Exactly right. But I thought to myself, I actually have a file full of definitions of faith, and they're all good. So I brought another one today. It's my favorite. If you've been listening to me, you've heard it in the past. I preached and I put it in a sermon last year. But I'm going to give it again to you. And if you say he's repeating, this is so good, it's worth repeating. Thomas Goodwin was a preacher in the 1640s. He was a member of the Westminster Assembly who helped to write the Westminster Confession of Faith. And today I'd like to read to you Thomas Goodwin's definition of faith from his book, Justifying Faith. Here's the definition. Listen to this. It's about 30 words long, okay? As the soul sees the spiritual excellency and the glory that is in Jesus Christ, so the will does set the highest value on that excellency that is in Christ, a value far above what a man has for all other things whatsoever. And this is to believe. Okay, at the very end I said, this is to believe, but maybe you didn't follow it. I told you it was 30 words long and I lost you on word 12. I'm going to read it again. And if you want a copy, here's the notes. Listen to this quote. This may be life-changing for you. What does it mean to believe? Some of you think you believe. Kulani, are you a believer? Colin, are you a believer? Callie, are you a believer? How would we know? Sir, are you a believer? Here's how you know. Is this, is this true of you? Let's read that quote again. Ready? Follow along and ask yourself, is this happening inside of me? Here it is. What is it to believe? This is to believe. When the soul sets or sees when the soul sees the spiritual excellency and glory that is in Jesus first of all has your soul ever seen spiritual excellence and glory in Jesus not in money not in new cars not in things on the earth has your soul ever seen beauty in Jesus if it's not seen that don't call yourself a don't call yourself a believer But there's a second part of Goodwin's definition. He says, the will, so your your soul is seeing the beauty of Jesus. And then further, your will, the choosing part of you. The part that says, yes, I will, no, I won't. That part of you. The will does something. What does the will do? It's setting the highest value on the beauty that is in Jesus. You follow that? There's two parts of this. Number one, you have to actually look at Jesus and see there is beauty in him. And then number two, you have to choose yourself, you know what? Previously, I had thought that a new Toyota Prado was worth 600,000, but now I'm going to take that 600,000 and I'm going to put it on Jesus. Previously, I had thought that a new house in Newtown that's double-story with the high pillars and has tile even on the driveway, previously, I had thought that was worth 2.6 million. But now I'm going to take that value off of the house and I'm going to put it where? On Jesus. Previously, I had thought if I just have a beautiful wife, that's going to be 24 million. I'm going to take that and put it on Jesus. Previously, I'd said if I get to eat meat every day. Previously, I'd said if everyone respects me. Previously, I'd said if I drive this car or have this house, if I have this thing, that's valuable. I'm going to change with my will the choosing part of man. I'm going to change and say, no, take the value off of there and put the value where? Goodwin says, that's what it means to believe. Look and choose. Have you ever done that? Because that's the condition. No one's doing greater works who has not first seen, seen what? Not just seen Jesus, seen something about Jesus. Seen what? Seen the beauty. Because you have to see Jesus and then say, he is glorious. He is beautiful. And then number two, the choosing part of your mind, of your body, of your heart. What does that choosing part, the will, what does it do? It sets value on the beauty of Jesus more than the value of anything else in the world. I ask you, have you ever believed in that way? Our town is full of people who say, oh, I prayed, Jesus, please save me. Please help me. Uh, I'm in such a hard place. Can't you... uh, um, uh, help me uh, and and save me and I receive you and I claim you. Uh, 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 Amen. Our town is full of people who've done that. But I want to know if they've gone further and seen the beauty of the Son of God. That's what needs to happen. And then go past... Seeing the beauty, but setting value and glory on that beauty. Satan lived in heaven and perceived the beauty of the Son of God. But he set value on his own beauty. He was not a believer and was cast out of heaven. You will follow that evil demon if you have not seen the beauty and set value on that beauty. That's the condition. No one will do these works who has not seen the beauty and glory of Christ. I challenged a Church of Christ preacher, an honest man, a hardworking man, a friend, a good family man, a man who knew his Bible, Church of Christ is a denomination that teaches if you want to go to heaven, you must do three things. You must repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, and you must be baptized. They do not say baptism comes after salvation. They say that baptism saves. When when I preach sola fide. Faith alone. They deny that. I'm not making this up. He actually told me, we do not believe in sola fide. Now, I already knew that because I knew the church of Christ, but I had it straight from his mouth. We don't believe in faith alone. We believe in faith and baptism. And he and I were friends and we spoke. He came to my house several times. I went to his house. And I asked this man... An honest and a good man. Where in the book of John is there baptism? And he said, that is a very good point because I don't believe baptism is in the book of John. Not even in John 3, 5, you must be born of water in the spirit. He correctly saw that that water is a picture of the Holy Spirit from Ezekiel chapter 36. So if baptism is not mentioned in the book of John, but John is written to tell us how to be Christians, then what's left? Here's why I'm telling you this story. That man said to me, that's a very good point. I'm going to have to go look into it. And did you know that John the Apostle wrote how many books? The Gospel of John, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, and Revelation. In not one of those books does John speak about baptism or the Lord's table. Not one. John never speaks about communion, the Lord's table. He never speaks about baptism. But he clearly teaches how to go to heaven. Because it comes back to my first point, which is what? Believing. There's a condition if you would see greater works, you must believe. And there's a reason given for these greater works. Look in verse 12. What is the reason given in verse 12 that believers will do these great works? What's the reason? When you read it the first time, you thought, that's not a reason. But it is a reason. For two reasons, it's a reason. Because what is Jesus going to do? I'm leaving you. You're going to do greater works because I'm leaving. How is that a reason? Two ways. This is the second point of the message if you're taking notes. What's the reason we're going to do these greater works? Well, there's two answers to that question. Jesus is leaving us. How does, him, how does Jesus leaving me make me do great works? Colin, don't you think you would be a stronger Christian if Jesus were living with you and walking with you? If, if Jesus was living in your house with you, don't you feel I would be such a strong Christian if he was with me right now? He says no. He says you're going to do the greater works if I leave. Two reasons why. Number one, John 16 verse 7, the same night, about one hour later, Jesus says, if I don't leave you, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will not come. God has so arranged it that he cannot and will not send the Holy Spirit until the Son leaves. That's John 16 verse 7. Just after that, Jesus says, it is better for you that I leave you so that the Holy Spirit comes. Not only you cannot have the Holy Spirit unless I leave, but secondly, if I leave, it's going to be better because the Holy Spirit is better. When I ask you right now, would you like to have Jesus living with you? We all say yes. Do you value the Holy Spirit? Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is such a gift that He alone is superior, better than Jesus' physical presence. What would we give? We just sang song number 42. How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects, sweet birds, sweet flowers. They've all lost their pleasure to me. What would you give to have Jesus with you Answer, it would be better for you to to have the Holy Spirit with you. And he is with believers. How is it that believers can do these great works? Because when Jesus leaves, he sends his Spirit. I wonder if we have valued enough the Holy Spirit. Years ago when I was evangelizing in Bungani, a man said, does your church believe in the Holy Spirit? And I said, oh, We love the Holy Spirit. And he replied, Well, I heard about you that you don't like the Holy Spirit. Oh, why would that be? He meant because we don't put our hands on the forehead of a 34-year-old woman and shout out loud and then push her backward. That's what he meant. When he said we don't, quote, believe in the Holy Spirit, he meant... I don't put my hand on the forehead of a 42-year-old man, shout and push him and try to throw him to the ground. I fail to see the logical connection between shaking a man's forehead and shouting and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm not following that logic. We love the Holy Spirit and we recognize without the Holy Spirit, we will not do the greater works and we need Him. And I ask all of you, stay with us today. As soon as we're done... At 10 o'clock in 35 minutes, we're going to walk right over there and we will pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we're going to do it again on Thursday night for an hour. We'll start at 6.30 and we are going to pray for the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to go further and tell you, ask for the Holy Spirit every day this week. Because in Luke, Jesus tells us when he gives the parable of the man who knocks On the door and tries to open. And the man says I'm asleep. I'm asleep. And he knocks and knocks. Jesus says in the same way. The father will give the Holy Spirit. To the ones who ask for it. Jesus will give the Holy Spirit. And we're going to go ask. Because we believe. In the Holy Spirit. We depend on the Holy Spirit. We are in desperate need. We cannot do these greater works. Unless he will come. Second reason. I told you there was two reasons. Within the reason Jesus is leaving. The second reason is this. Christ's ministry of intercession. Takes place. After he has returned to the Father. Did you follow that? Okay you didn't catch that. Follow this. We're asking the question, why must Jesus leave before we can do these greater works? And the answer is, number one, because when he leaves, he will give us what? The Holy Spirit. And number two, because his ministry of intercession largely takes place when he has gone back to the Father. I don't think we value the Holy Spirit, and I don't think we value Jesus in his prayers. Because how often have we thanked God in our private prayers that Jesus is praying for us right now? Did you realize that two of the three members of the Trinity are speaking to the Father on the believer's behalf? If you are a believer, if you've seen the beauty of Jesus and you've set value on that beauty... Two of the three members are praying for you. Romans 8 verse 26. When we pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings which cannot be translated into human words. There's a spiritual language that only the Holy Spirit speaks to the Father. And He's talking to the Father. And when you have difficulties, when you pray, He takes those words and He transforms them. That's Romans 8 verse 26. Just go to the end of the paragraph, Romans 8, verse 34. Same book, same chapter, same page of your Bible, probably. It says, whoever lives for us, making intercession for us. Not only does the Holy Spirit pray for the believer, the Son of God prays for the believer. And when the Son of God prays, do you think the Father does not hear him? He will listen, he will hear, he will answer. What prayers does he pray? He prays that you would be strengthened with all might in your inner man. He prays that you would be rooted and grounded in love. That you would understand the surpassing love of... I'm sorry, that you would understand the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. That you would be filled up with all the fullness of God. Jesus prays for you that you would be a dedicated Christian if you're a believer. So let me ask you... Look back at yourself now. Are you seeing the answers to Jesus' prayers? Has he kept you from falling to the armies of demons through which you walk every day? Those demons are not trying to take away your job. As I've said before, demons are happy if you have a job because it so often distracts people from heaven. How many people will rather go to work on the Lord's day rather than coming to hear Bible preaching? And when they're done with their work, they're so tired, they turn immediately to entertainment. You had to walk through demons this week who pulled you and grabbed at you to try to get you into the world, to love the world and the things that are in the world. If you still love the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because the Father heard the prayers of the Son. Every child should hear this right now and go to Jesus and say, pray for me. He'll hear that prayer. Some of you young men are just coming back. I'm so glad to see you boys. Go right to the Lord and say, if you don't pray for me, I'm too weak. I'm going to fall away. No young man likes to think of himself as weak. But if you don't see yourself as weak, Matthew 5 verse 3, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That word poor is the word tokos. It's a spiritual beggar. It's someone who's handicapped. He can't even walk. He's laying on the side of the road. Help, help. That's you. Young man, you see yourself as so strong. You can play soccer and you can run and you're handsome. You're nothing spiritually. Go right to Christ and say, pray for me. Otherwise, next week I'll be gone. The next pretty girl who walks along, she'll steal my eye, and then my heart, and then my body, and then I'm lost. Lost! You've got to pray for the Spirit of God. You've got to pray for the the Lord Jesus Christ to pray for you. His work of intercession is vital. It's essential to these greater works. Point number three. Notice this. There is a repeated word in verses 12, 13, and 14. It's found five times, but it's so small that you skipped over it. It's not small in Greek, it's small in English. It's not small in Songa or Venda or Shona, it's small in English. And if you have an English Bible, look down in verses 12, 13, and 14 and find the one word that's repeated five times. What is it, Hulani? Yeah, no, no. Yes, that might be repeated. There's another word. Not works. Nope. Say it. D O. If you have a pen, circle the word do. You'll find it three times. Three times in verse 12, once in verse 13, and once in verse 14. Now, who's the subject of all this doing? Who's doing the doing? Look at at verse 12. Tell me who's doing the doing in verse 12. Well, the first do is Jesus. The second do is who? It's the believer. The third do is who? Believers. Look in verse 13. Who's doing the works in verse 13? Who's doing the works in verse 14? Did you follow that clearly? The word do is found how many times? Answer back. Everyone, answer back. Wake up. Answer back. How many times is the word do found? Five times. In the first word, the first occurrence in verse 13, who's doing the action in verse 13? Jesus. Then the very next word do is the believer. The next do in verse 13 is the then in verse 13, who's doing it? Jesus. In verse 14, who's doing it? Jesus. Now, why is this important? Notice this, that it's Christ, the believer. The believer, Christ. Each time, it's these wonderful works. I want to teach you another theological term. I'm not trying to confuse anyone when I've used some theological terms the last few weeks. But some of you are very interested and want to learn these. And these theological terms are there to help you learn. So let me give you a theological word. Ready? Synergism. Synergism. Here's how you spell it S Y N. S Y N E R G I S M. It's nine letters, three parts. S Y N E R G I S M. Synergism. You could break it apart and figure it out. Sin together. Synonymous. It means you're working together. <clears throat> Sin together. Erg means work. Maybe you've heard of ergonomic activity, the, the study of work. Erg means work. Synergism. Synergism. Synergism means working together. Brothers and sisters, there are there are some things in the Bible that are Acts of synergism, where God and man work together. And there are some things in the Bible that are, listen to this. Here's another word, monergism. Same word, but change the first three letters. S-Y-N to M-O-N. Monergism. Does anyone know what mono means? Monopoly? One. Monergism is one person working. Synergism is we work together. Monergism is what? How many people are doing the work? One. One. Synergism, we're all... Working together. together. There are some things in the Bible that are what? Monergism. God does it by himself. He doesn't ask your advice. He doesn't need your help. Can anyone think of an example in the Bible of something that is monergistic? God made the world. He didn't ask for your help. He didn't need any advice. Creation, that's exactly what I wrote in my notes. The very first thing is creation. What's the very last thing at the end of the Bible that is completely monergistic? Judgment. Judgment. God's not going to ask for anyone's help. He doesn't need any advice. He's going to monergistically judge the world. First page of the Bible, last page of the Bible. He does it completely by himself. There are other things that God does by himself Without any input from man, you must be born again. No child sets the date for his birth. What was your birthday? No, Kulani, what's your birthday? Did you talk to mom and dad and say, hey, uh, you know, I'd really like to be born. Was it 2007. 2006. Did you say, you know, Mom, I think uh, back in 2004, did you talk to Mom and say, you know, I think 2006 would be a good time. I'd, li- I'd like to be born, say, uh, say, October 2006. You must be born again is a monergistic work. It's a work done by the father, not the child. Creation, the new birth, judgment, monergism. But here in this passage, we don't have one person doing the work, we have what? Jeez. Working together. The first do is done by Jesus. The second do is done by whom? The believer. You've got to make on your, in, the mind of your, in your mind, you've got to put shelves. And there's got to be a shelf now, synergism. And then on the other wall, have a shelf called monergism. When you're reading the Bible, you see God does this by himself. Take that and put it on what shelf? And when you see God and man are working together, you put it where? Synergism. Here we've got what? Synergism. God and man are working together in this point. Now this is found throughout the Bible. Not only once, but in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9, Paul writes, you are synergists with God. That's, the, that's If you just translate or transliterate the Greek word, it says synergist. But in English he writes fellow workers. You are fellow workers with God. That's synergist. You are working together with God. What is it that we work together with God? What do we do when working together with God? Well, we do these greater works working together with God. They must be done by Jesus because they're too great for you. And they must be done for man by man because Jesus is leaving This is a combined effort, but it's only combined in the work. It's not combined in the honor. That's the beautiful thing about the synergism of the Bible is that even though man works and God works, the honor is 100% God's. If you ask me, how is that possible? I tell you, let's talk about it in heaven. Notice point number four. There is a method to receive these greater works. What is the method? It's in verse 13 and 14. Look at verse 13 and 14. He tells it twice. What's the method? It's one short little word. Three letters. Ask. How many times do you see the word ask? it's there twice right in verse 13 he says whatever you ask in verse 14 he says anything it's as if our Lord is taking all the language and changing it around in different orders so you'll know it's all everything you could want is being offered to you it's a blank check It's everything you could need or want. We should be asking for these greater works, whatever, anything. But even in our asking, there's a condition. What's the condition of the asking? It's in verse 13, and again it's in verse 14. There's a condition. What is it? Look, look. what is it? In my name. Ask it in My name. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Asking in God's name does not mean praying your prayer and then adding on the phrase in Jesus' name. It does not mean that. You can pray in Jesus' name and never say in the name of Jesus. In fact, you can pray in Jesus' name without saying his name or his title. Praying in Jesus' name means what it would mean for me when I'm trying now to renew my visas. And I go to one office and they tell me, no, no, you can't be here. You've got to go down there to that office. And I say, oh, he sent me to you. And then they take my paper. Well, that's fictional. Actually, when, they say, when I say he sent me to you, there's still the problem and I have to go back to them. But after six of those, then they receive me. But eventually, if I'm sent in the name of that one office, the next office accepts me. You see, in the name of Jesus means with his authority, according to his knowledge, in perfect agreement with his plan. That's what it means. The things that you ask that are in his authority, in agreement with his will understanding his knowledge those are the things that are in his name do you say well then what are we supposed to pray for we can't pray for anything my wife was sick i wanted to pray for that my my uncle was you know lost his job my son failed at school i can't, i can't pray for anything everything i need i can't pray for if that's the way you're thinking You're not thinking biblically. You can't pray in Jesus' name because you don't know Jesus' words. Read his words. Let me give you some examples. In Psalm 2 verse 8, Jesus is talking. And he says, ask from me. I'm sorry, the father is speaking to the son. And the father says to the son, ask of me and I will give you, Jesus, All the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the world as your possession. The father says that to the son. Now, since the father and the son agree, we know that Jesus is praying for that. Why don't you pray with complete confidence? Father, give the Comorian Islands to your son. We did that on Sunday morning. Are you listening? Do you zone out in our prayers? I hope not. We're all supposed to be praying together. On Sunday mornings. And we pray for that. As an example. Go home then. And pray that way. On Monday to Saturday. Pray that way privately. And reach out with faith. Knowing God the Father. Is eager to give to the Son. The Comorian Islands. And Madagascar. And China. And Canada. And Uzbekistan. And Bulgaria. And countries you can't even find on a map. He is eager to do all of those things if we will ask. That's just one. Let me give some more. It is in His will that believers would persevere to the end. John 17 verses 11 and 12. It is God's will that all His people would persevere to the end. So go and pray for that with faith. Psalm 110 verse 3. It is God's will that His people would be, quote, Free will offerings. God's people are so commonly half-hearted and half-committed. Maybe I'll join the church. I'll come Sunday morning. I'm not sure about Sunday night. Well, tithing's a lot, but I'll give a hundred bucks every now and then. Well, you know, come to the prayer meeting. I'll read with my kids at night. I'm so tired. God's people are so commonly half-hearted. It is His will that they be free will offerings that they present their bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is their reasonable service pray for that because that's in his will when I pray for this church I pray that you would be free will offerings if God is answering that prayer it's because it's in his name is he answering that for you if he's not answering that for you then you're one of the weird ones Because he's answering that for the church members here. When you see him answering that prayer, come join us because you'll make a good fit. If you want him to answer that prayer, but you feel so weak, then come join us because I am 100% sure he will answer it because whatever we ask in his name, he hears us. Anything. The hard part is convincing people to actually desire that. Honestly, most of us really don't want to be that committed. Most of us don't want to be free will offerings. Most of us like our, I'll come Sunday morning, a little bit late, I'll leave a little bit early, I'll give just enough to know, I see, I I give my little tip, I do this little thing. Do we really want to be committed? Whatever we ask in his name, he'll do. If you go to him and say, make me a free will offering, he'll do that. Many of us don't pray that because in our heart, we don't really want it. What if we pray that the church would be built? Matthew 16, 18. And many more on my list here. Our time is running, so I'll move on. Let me bring you to the fifth point now, which is the great point of the message and what you were waiting for the whole time. You see, you want to know what these greater works are. And that's the fifth point of the message. You want to know what it is that these greater works are and what, what, what can they be. Because you've been on the TV and you've heard false prophets like Andrew Womack. Who says, the greater works are raising people from the dead and walking on water. And he says, I've done that. Or Ken Raggio, another false pastor whom you should stay far away from, who's on TV, who said the greater works are pouring water in your petrol tank and it becomes petrol. That's rubbish. That's backward, selfish, world-loving, satanic, false religion, garbage. And if you don't like the fact that I named those names, number one, you're in for a bumpy ride. But number two, you've got a problem right at the core of Christianity. Because if you don't mind at all that wolves are coming into your house, biting your children as they scream, and pulling them out to kill them, what's your problem, not mine? It's false teachers that are the wolves It's false teachers that are the dogs and pigs. I'm not making any words up. Those terms come directly from the lips of Jesus, Peter, and Paul. It's false teachers that send our children to hell. It's false teachers that might have gripped your heart. It's false teachers that might have trapped your wife or your husband. We need not play with false teachers, nor treat it lightly. We don't call anyone a false teacher lightly. But when a man comes to the greater works and he could preach the greater works and instead he says, oh, it's 900 rand for you to fill up the petrol tank. The greater works are, if you really believed in Jesus, you'd pour water in your tank and then you could drive for free. That's not only mechanical malpractice. That's doctrinal malpractice. He should pay if someone actually did that in their car. No, those are not the greater works. The twisted prosperity religion loves money. It loves this world. It has forgotten the words of 1 John 2:15, "Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. For the world is passing away and the lusts in it" But the one who does the will of God will live forever. Do you see the clear dichotomy? On one hand is the world and love for the world and love for things in the world. On the other hand is God and Christ. You can choose one, but you cannot choose both. If you think you are choosing both, you're choosing the world and tricking yourself about the little 2% by which you've chosen Jesus. So what are these works? Well, it's actually not difficult. Look in verse 12. It's very simple here. Jesus tells us there's a description on the word works. Look in verse 12. What's the description of the word works? The works that what? Look, look in your Bibles. Everyone in verse 12. The works that I do. Well, has anyone read the book of John? What works was Jesus doing? He did in the book of John 7 miracles, but we know in Matthew and Mark he did hundreds of miracles. He did many miracles. And number 2, what did he do? Preach. Preached. Number 3, what did he do? Acts chapter 10 says he went around doing good things. So he picked up children and blessed them. He taught his disciples to pray. He met with poor people. He met with Nicodemus. He listened to those who were hurting. He stopped a woman who was being stoned in adultery. He stopped a woman who had committed adultery from being stoned in John chapter 8. He did good. So those three things. What are the works that Jesus did? Three things. He did what? Number one, miracles. Number two, preached. Number three, he did good things. Now, I I would encourage you, read through the book of John and Mark every time you see the word works. Or the singular word work. And you'll see what I've just said is exactly what John refers to. John refers to either his preaching or his miracles or his general goodness and kindness. Like going to visit at a funeral. Going to visit at a wedding. Breaking up the funeral by raising the people from the dead. He does good things. Let's examine these in turn. It's really not difficult. We love miracles in this church. We love miracles because miracles were given for a good reason. Jesus did miracles to show that he was the Son of God. He says that over and over, John chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. I'm doing these miracles so that you will know that I'm the Son of God. He says it again, John chapter 7, John chapter 1. He says it here in John 14. I'm doing the miracles so that you'll know that I am the son of God. Why did Jesus do the miracles? It's not difficult. So that we would know he is the son of God. Jesus did so many miracles. He practically banished sickness from the land of Israel. An entire country. He's banning sickness. Can you imagine that? Today we have prosperity preachers who profess that they can do the greater works and they say they can heal people, then what's COVID doing here? If you can heal people, send COVID away. You can't. Jesus did though. He cleared out sickness from a whole country. And he promised in Matthew chapter eight, when I come back, it's not just this country, it's the whole world. So he did it. What was he doing that for? So that you and I would have no doubt, he is God's son. Compare him as some of the people did, Matthew chapter 16. They compared Jesus with who? Elijah and Jeremiah. Some people said, We hear your preaching and it sounds like Jeremiah because it's always negative. He said, No, I'm not Jeremiah. Someone else said, We hear, we see your miracles and we think you're Elijah because Elijah did so many miracles in the Old Testament. And he says, Yeah but look at the works he even told when John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 12 when John the Baptist comes to Jesus and says when he sends his followers to Jesus and John the Baptist is in prison and they say did John the Baptist get it wrong? are you really? are you really the son of God? he says just look at the miracles I'm doing did Elijah ever do things like this? look what I do I walk on water I take bread I break it in half and I keep doing that until thousands of people are fed these people who can supposedly do miracles. This is Pastor Chris uh, um, Oyuki. I'd like to see him take a, a loaf of bread and just feed everyone at the church. Take some noodles. Start breaking the noodles and give everyone pasta. He can't do that. Jesus did that. Elijah didn't do that. Jesus did. Elijah didn't walk on water. Elijah said, okay, we'll have an axe head float. Jesus said, axe head float. I make me float. Elijah calls the rain. Jesus stops the rain. Elijah did many miracles. Jesus did greater and better and far beyond. Jesus controlled life and death and not only raised more people from the dead than Elijah or Elisha did, Jesus even said, not only do I raise people from the dead, but I am the resurrection. And at the last day, John chapter 5, I will raise... Everyone, Elijah, by the power of God, did one or two. I'm going to raise every person who's ever lived. Seven point something billion right now. Yeah, they're all coming out by my one word. Why did Jesus do miracles? It's really very simple. So that we would know he is the son of God. He didn't give miracles as a test run for you. He didn't give miracles. He say, see, the power of God works. Now it's your chance to go do them. He did miracles... So that we would not have any doubt that this man who's got skin a little darker than mine. Who's got two eyes and two ears. Who's got dark hair. Who's about my height or your height. Who has to sleep at night and wake up in the morning. And when you look at him you say he's just a man. And he says no I'm the son of God. He did those miracles so that you would not have a reason to doubt. The greater works are the preaching. I'm sorry, the works that he did is the preaching. So now I ask the question, what are the greater works? What are the greater works? Well, it happens to be that we have a record of these greater works. Mr. Masangani, where is the record of the greater works that Jesus promised? Mr. Mashele? Where's the record of the greater works? Where, 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 where's the record of the greater works? It's in the book of Acts. Because about 53 days after Jesus spoke these words, about 53 days, not even two months, he's going to die. Three days later, he comes back from the dead. 40 days later, he goes. 10 days after that, the Holy Spirit comes in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. What are the greater works? Read the book of Acts like I did and take a green pen and put a square around every time you see great works. Let me give you some of them. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 3,000 people saved. There was 120 believers at that time. 3,000 people were saved. 120 times 25 makes 3,000. Your church grew 25 times in one sermon. Can you imagine that? That creates a lot of cell groups, right? (laughs) One sermon, 25 times growth. Is that not greater works? Jesus lived for three years and preached and did not start one church. When he went back to heaven, he told the people who were terrified in Acts chapter 1, He said, You just go back to Jerusalem and wait. You wait for power. They didn't have power, they were afraid. They're hiding in the upper room out of fear. They're not evangelizing, they're not preaching, they're terrified. They, they thought, well, what's going to happen? We don't know. They even asked him in Acts chapter 1, just as he's about ready to go up to heaven, they even say, is it time now that you're going to rule the whole earth? And Jesus says, no, you don't need to know what time I'll rule the whole earth. You just go wait. We've been waiting. What do we do? Get quiet, quiet, sit and wait. You'll get power in time. And sure enough, 10 days, a week and a half after he says you'll get power, Power comes. The one, the son of God, who could walk on water and stop the storms, never planted a church. But these weak men and women, they planted a church. And it grew 25 times in a day. The next chapter, two chapters later, chapter 4, verse 4. Maybe a week or 10 days later, the church grows by 5,000 in one day again. That's the day the pastor is arrested. I would gladly be arrested if our church grew 25 times in a day. Chapter 4, verse 4. 5,000 people converted. Can you imagine that? 3,000 people converted with one of Peter's sermons. 5,000 people converted with another of Peter's sermons. I mentioned Peter's sermons. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, the disciples were evangelizing. That's you. 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 The disciples were evangelizing. And they were seeing people converted Every day. (laughs) Every single day. These are the greater works. They're recorded right there. And then, when the disciples are arrested, the disciples do not pray to be released. They pray for boldness. Did you hear that? They're put in prison, and the whole church gathers to have a prayer meeting that the pastors will be let out of prison. No, they don't. The church prays, Help us to be bold like those guys so they'll, all put, they'll put us all in prison. How can they put 5,000 people in prison? <laughs> when Peter and John get out of prison in Acts chapter 4, in verse 28, they go back and meet with the church. They don't even go home. They go straight to the church. Imagine that. You go through something so hard. The police arrest you. You get out and you say, oh, I'll go home just now. Let me first go to the church for a prayer meeting, not sermons. A prayer meeting. At the prayer meeting, the Bible says the place where they had gathered was shaken. The whole building shakes as they pray. And what do they pray for? They pray this. We pray that with all boldness, we may make known the name of Jesus Christ. And the next verse says, the Holy Spirit came on them. Do you think we might see greater works if we prayed, God, make us bold. Make me go preach in the streets. I would love to hear Isaac's preaching in the streets. Chris, who's this? There's a, there's a vendor guy standing on the corner preaching. Who is this? I would love to hear, oh, so and so, they're busy on Tuesday night. They can't come to the theology class. Why not? They have nine people at their home doing a Bible study. They're leading people to Jesus. This was the average church member. And it goes on the whole way through the book of Acts. I listed about 20 different passages. That I boxed in the green ink. Where these are the greater works. They're planting churches sometimes in a week. In Thessalonica they planted one of the best churches in the whole Bible. In a month. Those are the greater works. I've been here at this church how long? Four years? They plant the church in a month. Brothers and sisters we need to see the greater works. I invite you on the authority of this passage. Meet with us for prayer. If you have to go we understand. But if your heart longs to see the greater works, then let's use the tool. We were told, go pray. Pray for anything. We're going to pray for greater works. We're going to pray for people to be converted like the book of Acts. We're going to pray that we would become free will offerings. We're going to pray that we would be known as the church that loves God and man. This is a revival sermon. That's a revival passage. And my time is well gone But I have example after example from church history where God heard the prayers of his people and answered.